You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you to open up your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter 18 as we continue actually from a series we left off in last spring called God and Man. And we are moving through the book of Genesis. Um, if you are in a city group or if you're looking to kind of stay with the Bible reading plan, we're going to make our way through the book of Genesis. And uh, we had left off in a segment of the book of Genesis, because it's really long, um, on, the, on the life of Abraham. And the life of Abraham uh, becomes this picture for us as what does it look like for a person who was just nobody from nowhere in Ur uh, to get uh, an encounter, to encounter God Uh, for his life to be changed and go from a place of no faith, of having no faith whatsoever, to having some faith, to be full of faith, to becoming friends with God. This is what we see over the path of of Abraham's life. And so we left off in Genesis chapter 18, and that's where we'll pick off. But um, I want to start this morning off by uh, just telling a couple of jokes. Uh, I saw saw on the beach this last uh, week a t-shirt of a dad, and the dad said, like, days counting without telling dad jokes, and it had a big zero next to it. And so I feel like I'm not being a full dad, uh, at least to my four kids, without telling a few jokes, and so we're going to get started that way. Um, But uh, uh, here's here's one of my favorites that I found this week. It says, do you ever just wake up and uh, kiss the person sleeping beside you and just feel glad that you're alive? It's a good feeling, right? I just did, and apparently uh, we will not be allowed on that airline again. I thought that was a good one. Uh, I thought this was a good one. Um, So at least I'm enjoying myself up here. My snooty new girlfriend dumped me the other day after just one date uh, because uh, the table I had reserved was too close to the toilet. She didn't even stay to finish her Big Mac. Boom. Okay, Uh, continuing on. Beautiful woman walks into the gym and and the guy trainer, uh, excuse me, and the guy tells the trainer, what machine should I use to impress her? And the guy looks at the guy, the trainer looks at the guy up and down and says, you should probably try the ATM machine. Thought that was a good one. Uh, and this is a longer one, so uh, let me just kind of read it out here. But as a, as a bagpiper, uh, the guy says, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked um, by a funeral director to play at a graveside service um, for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be a pauper cemetery in Nova Scotia backcountry. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop and ask for directions. Finally, I arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers and the crew left, and they were eating lunch. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played my heart and soul for this man with no family and friends. I played like I'd never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep, and I wept, and we all wept together. And when I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head was hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door of my car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen anything like this before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. Yeah. I think, that, uh, I think that laughter is a ministry. I think that laughter is something that God gives us for life, uh, for marriage, uh, for church. Um, I think that, that uh, laughter should be something we do a lot more in church, to be honest. I think that laughter reminds us to not take ourselves too seriously. You can be a room uh, of people with, with deep problems, you know, and maybe even divisive things within the room, like 
societally of, of rich and poor or young and old or, or race difference, but laughter tends to cut, doesn't it? It tends to go to the heart. It tends to humble us. If you think about it, like both laughing and crying are involuntary things. Like you can always stop laugh or stop walking or stop talking if you really wanted to. You know, like you can make a conscientious decision. But if something were to strike you as funny, I don't know if you've ever been in math class before as a seventh grader and some teacher said some word that made you start giggling and it got contagious. Uh, Zane, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, your face turns red and you just can't stop laughing because laughter is the heart, you know, spilling over. It's responding to something and it demands a response. And so, uh, actually, I stole all these jokes from uh, Bill Johnson, a pastor out in Reading. Oftentimes, he'll open up sermons just like this and just tell jokes because he says that when the laughter hits the room, the walls come down. And that's when ministry can really start to happen. It's a ministry of surrender. It's a way to let go and let God and be small again and be childlike again. But not all laughter comes from the same place, and not all laughter um, is rooted in the same places of, of our heart, Right? There is a cynical kind of laughter, or sarcastic laughter, a critical kind of laughter that isn't the same breed of that pure, joy-filled, childlike laughter. Uh, there's a few quotes that I found. I, I, of all people that I've read before, I think C.S. Lewis does a great job of this. Uh, two different books. One is called The Problem of Pain. The other one is called The Screwtape Letters. And I'll just read this, and maybe you've been in a room like this and heard laughter that comes from a different place than joy, that comes from a different place than wonder. It comes from a place of cynicism or sarcasm or flippancy. So uh, this is the first quote that I have for you from a book called The Problem of Pain. Lewis tells us of a man who rises to great esteem but is unrepentant. He laughs at those he wrongs to get on top. Do you know that kind of laughter? Do you ever laugh this way? He laughs at their simplicity, thinking himself the greater person, the more privileged and the more deserving. He is without remorse and is confident to the very end that he alone has found the great riddle of life. There's a pride, right, when we, when we laugh at, right, at, at somebody rather than with people. And uh, that God and man, um, that God and man are fools whom he has gotten the better of. Uh, that is his way of life, utterly successful, satisfactory, and unassailable. So there's a sarcastic kind of laughter, a, a kind of cynical laughter that really comes from hurt and pain and pride and fear more than it comes from joy and wonder and childlikeness. And so he continues on, he talks about four different kinds of laughter. I want us to reflect maybe on the kinds of laughter that, that comes, about, um, comes out of us sometimes. But Lewis says that there's four kinds of laughter. There's the laughter of joy, the laughter of fun, the laughter of jokes proper, which is a kind of British thing, I guess. I don't even know what jokes proper means, but it's certainly British sounding to me. And flippancy, he says, is the worst kind of laughter. The cause of laughter when humans experience joy, says Screwtape, is unknown, but joy doesn't win souls to hell. Remember, Screwtape Letters is written in the counter-narrative, right? It's one demon writing a letter to another demon about how to win souls to hell is rather than win souls to heaven. And so he's saying that laughter can be a tool to distract people and even convince people to come into their own fear and pride and flesh. And so he says, fun arises from the play instinct. It's like joy. It's not very useful to a demon, but it distracts people from doing other things the enemy has in mind for them. Jokes are much more promising in the way to win souls to hell. Humans, especially like the, in the British, right, screw tape, he says, can excuse any vice by making a joke of it, right? If everything's laughable, then nothing's important. Nothing's sacred. Everybody's high. Everybody's drunk. Everybody's lustful. Everybody's sinning, right? This is the kind of laughter that wants to corrode society, corrodes the hearts of the church, and anesthetize them to real pain or real change or real repentance because if everything's funny, then nothing's sacred, right? And there's a flippancy to this kind of laughter, and it's not the same kind of laughter as childlike, joy-filled laughter. It excuses vice by making jokes of it. Cowardice is acceptable so long as one brags about it in a comical manner. Flippancy, however, is the best of all. Flippant people don't actually laugh. They just assume everything is laughable. It's good, right? 
Flippancy is not actually laughter. It's not the kind of thing that God has created because it tries to demean society and, and undermine its value, its sacredness. They take nothing seriously, not even virtue. This isolates them from um, the enemy. And contrary to what they believe, is not making them more intelligent at all. There's a kind of flippancy that is actually coming out of pain. Uh, it's, it's, it's laughing and because if you weren't laughing, you'd be crying. And it's not a sincere laughter. And so... Um, uh, today, the story in Genesis 18 is about the laughter of Sarah. The laughter of Sarah is transformed from Genesis 18 to Genesis 21 to be a completely different kind of laughter. Same person, same chuckle, different heart, different origin of emotion. And so Sarah, Sarah's testimony throughout the book of Genesis, that we've been hearing about Abraham so much, is significant to us because it talks about the power of God to transform not just our actions but our heart, to transform the involuntary impulses of who we are as a person from the inside out to move from the place of cynicism to the place of joy to the place of wonder. And so I thought we'd pause even before getting into the scripture and just ask ourselves a few questions. If laughter is really involuntary and it's connected to the heart and it's telling us where our heart is, if we listen to our laughter, what would our laughter be telling us? If you listen to the last 10 jokes you laughed at, the last 10 jokes you told, the last couple things that really made you chuckle and laugh and grabbed hold of you in seventh grade science class, what was the value distinctive of the laughter that was coming out of you? Because your laughter is telling you more even than your worship songs. Your laughter is telling you more even than your belief systems. Your laughter is telling you your values. It's telling you where your heart really is. It's telling you about the sorrow in your heart, sometimes more than the tears that come out of your eyes. It's telling you about the jadedness, the brokenness. Do you laugh enough? Do you laugh? Um, do you, do you, do, are, you, are you connected are you connected to the, to the greater story that we are small uh, people that are finite, you know, dust, that are trying to grapple with big realities by, by coming into the hands of a big God? Are we, are we small enough to laugh and small enough to laugh at ourselves? And that's the second question. As we, as we grow older and as we run up against the hard things of life, the pains of life, do we mourn them and grieve them enough that our heart walls can come down and we can actually laugh and experience Real joy rather than flippant joy. Are we laughing? And if we're laughing, are we laughing at others or are we laughing at ourselves? Do we have enough humility to know how to laugh at ourselves? And would you say your laughter is founded mostly in joy or cynicism? This is, I think, what Sarah's life could hold a mirror up to us this morning. Genesis uh, chapter 18, if you're there, the Lord appears to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looks up and he sees three men that are standing beside him. When he saw them, he hurries to the entrance of the tent to meet them, and he bows down to the ground. Verse 3, he says, If I have found favor, this is what Abraham says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. We're going to pay attention to this. God is changing Abraham. He's changing him. He's not just changing his circumstances and surroundings. He's changing the very essence, the DNA of who Abraham is. And so he is bowing down low in the presence of God. He says, if I found favor in your eyes, don't pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may I may wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they're answered. Do as you say. I don't know if you've ever, because uh, you're not a, maybe not a 90s kid, but as a 90s kid, you spend time in the video store in Blockbuster. You guys know what Blockbuster is? <laughs> or Redbox? Um, at Blockbuster, uh, you always had the oldest movies, you know, up front, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, you know what I mean? 
uh, some 70s Blazing Saddles movie or whatever, was always up at the front. And there was this interesting dynamic where they would like host, they would like kind of rack up the different tapes, the VHS tapes up toward the thing, and the sun would come in. You guys remember that what would happen to the covers of the films that were like sitting up front for too long? They would kind of fade. They would kind of fade into this kind of muted out color. And that was the erosion of the sun. And you would really like think about that as a kid, like, wow, man, like, that's crazy. I never would think of the impact of the sun, not just in a day or in a moment, but over months and months and months and years and years and years, that it would like change the actual chemical or picture or whatever visual makeup of this, of this VHS tape. And this is, I think, is what, what the story is showing us. Between the lines, between Genesis 12 and now Genesis 18, is like God is changing Abraham. And, and he's changing Abraham all of a sudden, like all of a sudden, uh, one day he was uncircumcised, and then the very next moment he was circumcised. So that's a pretty big change, right? And he changed his name pretty suddenly, and that's a pretty big change. But some of the change is not, it's not sudden, it's slow and residual, and it's ongoing, and, and, and it's over time. And, and it's not just the kind of um, peripheral change and outside change, it's, it's like, it's, it's a content qualitative nature of who Abraham is as a character. This is what the scripture is showing us. We are looking at a Genesis 18 Abraham, which is fundamentally different than the Genesis 12 Abraham. We're supposed to go, how does that happen? Y'all remember, of course, when um, Kanye West came to Jesus. Kanye West, like of all the people in 2006 or whatever it is when Kanye West first released his album, I mean, I guess I'm just as critical and, and, and judgmental as anybody else, but I'm like, I would think of, of a list of 100 people, I would put 99 of them before Kanye West would come to know Jesus. And there he is, right? Like just baffling everybody and going on Jay Leno and preaching the gospel and not having any, not putting up with any of it, you know? And he releases his first album, Jesus is King. And, uh, and we all remember, right? Like the church was just super skeptical. Like Kanye couldn't ever be saved. He's not spirit-filled. He's just trying to do this as a ploy. He's, he's just using the church, and we're going to be dumb and, and blind sheep for following him. And sure enough, he still continues to follow Jesus. He talks to his wife, Kim, about how she dresses and uh, continues to read the Bible every night, and he continues to follow Jesus with all of his heart. And it's a profound, profound thing, right? Because, because people very rarely change like that. Like, we react to that because we don't think that people change. Styles change. Economies change. Uh, presidents change. Styles change. People don't change. You meet somebody at 20, they're pretty much the same person by the time they're 50. A little bit more wrinkly, right? But when somebody changes, it gets our attention. I mean, that's pretty profound when you look at somebody that is as, as strong and as powerful and influential as Kanye West change in the name of Jesus, like practically overnight. This is like, this is, this is strange to us. And this is the miracle, right? This is the greatest miracle is that he's a God of the plot, but he's a God of the people. And he's not just changing the plot, he's changing the person. And if it takes 10 years, or if it takes 100 years, or if it takes 25 years, he is beating that sun ray against your heart until it will change, because he's not changing. It is an unchanging nature that God presents in our life, the counter-conditional nature of God that continues over time to erode at us until there's nothing left of us except what is like him. And he's not just calling Abraham alone. He's holy. He's making him holy. And not just the thin, artificial performance-based holiness, but from the inside out, holy, holy. This is what he is making Abraham. He's making him a holy generation, a great nation, a different name, somebody that is blessed to be a blessing. And he's doing this through his covenant. And that's what we see. We see Abraham not only waiting on God uh, in the dark of the night. Remember when he used to meet God and it was scary and gloomy and brooding and there was animal pieces everywhere? He's just meeting him in the middle of the day. He's meeting him for coffee, for lunch. He's not just like dragging himself out of bed for his devotion. He's on the edge of his, of his tent, of his property, waiting for God to meet with him. It's a delight and not a duty. 
his wanter, his desires. Like, it's not just his actions. It's not just that he, he does what God says. It's that he wants what God says, right? That's two different things. You'd have two different people going to two different churches or same church for two different reasons, singing the same song for two different reasons, tithing for two different reasons. There's a difference between doing what God says and wanting what God says. How do you make that happen? Because I can make my kids do a lot of stuff, right? I can incentivize them and give them carrots and sticks to change them. But to change their heart, man, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. He wants God. He's probably one of the richest guys on the face of the earth, and he has all these tribes, and he's waiting. He's waiting on the edge of his tent, waiting for the next moment with God. He has been changed. He is being changed fundamentally. As a creature, he is not the same thing anymore. And so I want to encourage you, listen, these stories, these stories, they're not guilt stories. They're hunger stories. The stories we encounter in this Bible are not for us to feel guilty that we don't want God that bad. They should make us feel like, what if I could want God that bad? What if he could change me? Instead of just trying to change our performance and try and be more like Abraham and sit at the 10 and wake up at six. No, the prayer is like, no, I don't have what he has, so I want what he has. So I'm going to start with prayer. I want this. Change me. I want the beams and the love and the, and the faithfulness of your life to so encounter me year after year after year that I'm no longer the same person at 50 when I was at 20. And so change me. This is, this is the prayer that we should say from Abraham. And so maybe it's just my two cents to think about. But like, there's a great book titled... I know John Piper, like, he writes a lot of great books. I never read them. Uh, I like the titles, though, and they're great titles because I feel like they preach for themselves. He's got a book that's called What Do You Do When You Don't Want God? What do you do when you don't desire God? Because that's what the prayer should be. The prayer should not be, let me do better for God. The, the prayer should be, let me, do, let me do what he wants because I want to do it. This is what the quote is, right? Very well, says the Lord. Do as what? As you say. This is what's happened. This is the fundamental change of the relationship. It's not do as I say. It's do as you say, because you already want what I want. You're no longer a servant, you're a friend. Transform me into, into somebody that wants you. And so what do you do when you don't want God? Have you ever not wanted God? And maybe Abraham's picture shows us a little something that's the richest maybe guy on the face of the planet. Certainly, covenantally, he is more blessed than anybody up until this point of his peers. With all of his wealth behind him, having everything but nothing in light of wanting Jesus. He's sitting on the, on, on the edge of his property and he's not turning towards what he has but he's turning towards his hunger and longing for what God wants. Maybe, maybe, maybe that the secret of finding desire for God is remembering the lack of fulfilling the desires of the things that you have in your life that you already have today. Maybe it's a trip home and you literally take the thing that you were so excited to buy that took you a, a year you know, to save up and you told all your friends and you posted it 15 times and it's 10 years old now and totally, totally, you know, illegitimate, totally irrelevant now. And maybe desiring God is just picking up that thing and being like, the thing that I want right now is just as irrelevant as the thing that I wanted 10 years ago. Maybe it's going through social media and going back in your pictures and remembering the people that you were so desperate to get their approval, remembering from 10 years ago that they're not really in your life anymore and that their opinions don't matter as much as you think. Maybe our hunger and our, and, our, and our desire for God is stirred up by realizing how unappetizing and undesiring the things are that, that we already have that we idolize. Maybe this is the, the secret to the desiring life, to wanting God. But no, no doubt about it, Abraham is not a slave to God. He is being made a friend of God. And it's because of God's continual showing upness, his continual faithfulness, his unchanging nature is changing Abraham fundamentally from the inside out. This is, this, is the, this is the unconditional, counterconditional, covenantal love of God. This is how God is changing 
the world through Abraham and through families like his by not changing in his faithfulness. Verse 6 says, So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah, and he says, Quick, get these three seahs of, of finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Verse 7, Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk, uh, and then, excuse me, and the calf that uh, had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And God says to Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. So this is a really big moment. If you've been studying with us, you know, the Bible has a lot of design patterns. Um, within Genesis, there are key phrases, almost like melody lines in a musical, that are supposed to trigger and remind us of key themes that are throughout the Scripture. And the question, the question of God asking one person where another person is, is a fundamentally significant one. Right? Because the first time it's asked is actually asked to Adam about himself. Like, do you know where you are, dude? Like, do you even know who you are or where you are or what you're doing? Like, he asks Adam to stop him in his tracks. And he's calling him for a grace moment. He's not indicting him. He's not trying to judge him. He's trying to call him back to repentance. Where are you, dude? Where are you? We used to walk together like, where are you? And that question travels, right? It travels into, you know, the first sin beyond the exodus of the garden where Cain kills Abel. And, and he says to Cain, not this time about himself, but about his brother, he says, Cain, where is Abel? As if God doesn't know where Abel is. He knows where Abel is, he knows where his blood is, and he knows that his blood is going to be crying out from the ground, from unjust murders that will continue to happen before and after, or after, you know, Abel. But he asks Cain, and Cain says to him what? Am I my brother's keeper? Right, so lodged in that question is a significant one, is that almost with the same level of care and, 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 and priority that, that God would ask Adam, where are you? He's asking Cain on his brother's behalf, where is your brother? Do you know where your brother is? What does he say to the woman at the well? Uh, when, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in the book of John and he speaks to her, and she is a woman that has been married to several men, and, and she asks him the, he asks her the question, the same punchline question, as though he doesn't know where her husband is. Where is your husband? These are deep heart questions. These are three in the morning type of questions that God will ask us. Where are you? And where is your wife? Where is your husband? Where is your church? Where are your friends? Because we are our brother's keeper. We are deeply, fundamentally integrated. This is what 1 John 4 says. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother and sister is a liar. There's no such thing as individualistic Christianity. There's no such thing as getting saved into heaven without getting saved into the church. And so the question that will meet us at 3 in the morning is not just where are you, but where is your church? Where is your brother? Have you checked on him? What is your sister's need right now? Do you know your sister's need? Your small group leader, your small group person, your family member. Do you know? Because you're not just responsible for You're responsible for your family. You were, you were baptized, not just into heaven, but into a family. Do you know where your cousin is? How is your family doing? Do you know the, the needs, the, the goals, the wants, the gifts? Do you steward the people in your life? We know that we love God because we love others. This is how they will know that you are mine, is that you will love one another. That's the greatest commandment. And so there is no where are you question without the where are they question. And this is where he says, and, and this is Abraham's relationship with God has not only changed, it's relationship with everyone else too. There's no such thing as changing my relationship with God without changing the way I treat the needy or treat my church or treat my neighbor, right? So he's saying, where is, and this is the moment, like I get a sense that like, I don't know, there's a celebration in heaven with a cake and somebody blew out a candle. He says, he's like the first person to ever get it. I know where my wife is. Sounds like a simple question, right? I know where she is. 
I think about her. I pray for her. I wash her in the word every night. I, I, I minister to her. I care for her. I think about her and put her above myself. That's not the way of Cain. You see what he's done? He's put the light of love and covenant into Abraham's life. So not just he's changed you know, his behavior. He's changed his desire. He's changed who he is. He's changed. This is a miracle. This is, this is the miracle greater than Lazarus. And it's just between the letters and the page. It's not even the main point, right? Because this story is not about Abraham. This is about Sarah, verse 10. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Listen, this is where Sarah is. It says that Sarah was not in the tent. She was listening from the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. She's eavesdropping. I don't know where that, uh, that, that slogan, that, that phrase came from, but maybe it comes from a verse like this. She's eavesdropping. She's listening in as, as a secondhand person. And, and maybe, maybe it, it speaks to us this morning, you know, reminding us like the secondhand, you know, encounters with, with God and, 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 and vicariously living faith out, you know, through somebody that's in our group or somebody that's in our church or somebody that's in our family. The secondhand faith isn't the faith that God has come to bring us to. He's come to bring us to the face-to-face faith. He's come to, come to bring us to the firsthand daily residual relationship with him. And so he's not come for Abraham, he's come for Sarah. He knows that Sarah's on the other end of the tent. He's already told Abraham and Sarah who he is and what he's doing. So why is he there? Is he telling Abraham a repeat episode of the last show? He's there not for Abraham, he's there for Sarah. He wants to speak to Sarah because he doesn't want to speak to Sarah through Abraham, he wants to speak to Sarah, and that's the deal. He doesn't just want to speak to you through Timothy as he leads worship, he wants to speak to you. He knows your name, and he wants to speak to you today, and, and directly, face to face. And so you see the story, you know, begins to shift. Verse, eight, verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughs at herself, and she thinks, am I worn out? Or, after I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Verse 13, it says, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? You see what the Lord just did? A little sneaky piece of scripture there, but he took Sarah's answer of all the self-defeating and self-loathing and all of the disappointment and, and, and disgust, and he just removes, he completely ignores all of the negative you know, parameters that she, that she says about herself, right? Verse 12, she laughs. He says, she says, after I'm worn out, and that word is like, oh, I mean, just like useless. It wasn't even just like tired and old, but it's useless. I'm no good for nobody. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm emptied of any value is what Sarah sees in herself. And, and the Lord won't even speak that over her life. Why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Cuts out all of that. He's coming to her in grace. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And then this little funny quibble, right? Verse 15, Sarah says, Sarah's afraid, so she lies and says, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yes, you did. I don't know, maybe it's because God has a sense of humor. Um, God came to speak directly to Sarah. And um, it's not the main point, but it should get noticed that he doesn't come to speak to Sarah the same exact way as he came to speak to Abraham. Just the same as he probably came to speak to you the very first time you talked to him differently than he came to speak to me. Maybe there's just a little sermonette there to think about, but almost no two journeys with Jesus are the same. There are people that come to Jesus in very spirit-filled, charismatic environments. And as they continue on, um, I know many that just as much as they have loved the, um, 
the, the face-to-face, the connection, the spirit-filled um, tradition of Christianity have, have equally loved to grow in love for the word, for the scripture, for, for, for you know, apologetics, for uh, exegetical teaching. It didn't start with the word, it started with the spirit. But then also you probably know others that have really loved the apologetic side of the Bible and learned to read the Bible, you know, from left to right and, and, and thought about it and, and, and chewed on it and studied it and that was their worship. And yeah, maybe they don't raise their hand in the church. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe the, you know, they haven't had uh, a kind of right now, suddenly crazy experience with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that they don't love God? Does that mean that they don't desire Jesus? Oftentimes I think in the church we expect that everybody is going to encounter God the same way that we encountered God. And then we judge the fruit of that based on how we see our journey going. And maybe it's just a reminder that God meets everyone in very different ways. And however he wants to do it, short of sin, we should celebrate what God has done and not complain about how he does it. And so I think, I think there, there's, there's a grace there. You know, like there's, there's something to um, identifying and seeing the way that God speaks to each of us individually and speaks to us in very personal ways because he's not just the God of the plot, but the God of a person. But but it, it's, it's, just, it's just crazy, right? Like, what is God doing in the middle of the day to go give the same news that he's been giving for the last 25 years, but he goes out of his way to give it to somebody face-to-face? And then on the last couple of verses, he wants to talk about laughter. I remember when I was a kid, and uh, I used just to quote Allen Iverson. He, you know, remember Allen Iverson, the great NBA player who uh, got fined for not going to practice? And he kept saying, practice? Why are we talking about practice for this isn't a game. This is practice, like all the great things Alan Iverson will ever do. And this is the quote we remember him for. Why are we talking about laughter? Like, why are we here this morning talking about laughter? Like, don't you want to save the world? Isn't there like a baby to be had here? And God wants to highlight, like, in this scripture, and apparently today, the major summarizing theme that all commentaries will look at this passage is this passage is not about Abraham, it's about Sarah. And it's not just about the baby, it's about the laughter. Isaac's name which eventually is the outcome of this whole prayer and this whole promise that God is doing, means laughter. And it fundamentally changes. I'm going to read the passage to you in just a moment. How Sarah's laughter gets changed as a sign that her heart is being changed. Why does God care about our laughter? Because God cares about our heart. And he has a, a cattle on a thousand hills. And he can make any arm grow out. And he can, he can heal any cancer. And he can do anything that he wants to do because he's God. But the thing that he has allowed us in our choice, because lovers can't be robots, he has allowed us to choose away from him. And so the greatest miracle, I mean the greatest miracle, is not just from sick to healed, it's from dead to life. He is bringing somebody to life. And that's why the laughter matters. Because he cares more about the laughter than our, than our calculated actions. He wants to know what we're crying about. He wants to know what we're laughing about. He's checking on us because he is our keeper. He's the ultimate shepherd. And he's not just not knowing where we are. He knows where we are because he hears our tears and he hears our laughter. And he cares what we're laughing about. What are you laughing about? Do you laugh? Do you laugh enough? And is your laugh rooted in joy or in cynicism? This, this, this scripture speaks to all of us. It speaks to all of us. And I don't need to be prophetic to know that it speaks to all of us. Because all of us feel infertile in some way or shape or form. All of us feel like we're on the beach building a sandcastle that the waves of life keep knocking down. We all feel this way. We all feel we should be further than we were than we are. We all set out in life when we're 15 or 20 and we think we're going to be in this grade, but we're really back here in this grade. We've all, we all know what it feels like to be walking forward and see everybody else on the elevator 
And we're trying to take the steps and we keep sliding back down. We all know what it feels like to be faithful without being fruitful. And this is a, this is a, I mean, of all the things in life, this is the stuff that breaks us down the most. This is where the proverb says that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Sarah's heart sick. This is 25 years of a, prophet, of a promise delayed. Are you not faithful? Did you not call me? Is this not happening? This isn't just a disappointment. This is a discouragement. This is, this is digging deep down into something of who Sarah is. And her laughter is revealing that. And God's like, I'm going to put a pin in that because I'm not letting go of that conversation. I care about your laughter because I care about your heart. And especially, I think, ladies speaks to women, right? Because in our over-sexualized society, and that's just not America, that's all time, that oftentimes... This unfortunately becomes where the story and the plot line for many, many women ends up. One third of all females, right, at least in America, are sexually abused by the time they're 18. And because of the fallen society and because of the brokenness of mankind, like women are put under the expectation to be prettier and perfect and, and have it all together and keep their kids in line and so forth. And the years and years and years go on, and oftentimes it means the sacrifice of occupation, it means the sacrifice of their own desires for kids, and at the end of the day, sometimes the kids love them, sometimes they reject them. And this becomes the prayer of many women, right? They're smiling on the outside, but they're not laughing. And if they are laughing, they're not laughing with a lot of joy. I am worn out, I am used up, I am old news. And this is where Sarah is at 90, and where many of us are today, guys and girls included. And we don't talk about this because we're supposed to be happy. And we smile, but we're not laughing, right? And we don't have joy in our laughter. So let me flip the pages a few more pages, and we know the theme music is there because it still talks about laughter, and we're still talking about the same conversation, even though it's years later. But in, verse, in, chap- in chapter 21, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and at the very time that God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac, which means laughter, to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh at me, with me. God has brought me laughter. This is what Sarah says the culmination of right this great promise in her role in the biblical narrative to have this child. This is her sentence. She's not just talking about the son. She's talking about the laughter. She's not just talking about the plot. She's talking about her heart. She's, not, God is, she's testifying right there that God has not only changed her circumstance, is that, she's, it's that God has, has formed and shaped and changed her and that her laughter is different. Her cry, her tears are different. She's been changed. And she adds, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Um, There used to be this this, uh, gal that I was um, on this uh, mission trip with one time. Um, She had a a contagious laugh. You know somebody that laughs and just like the way they laugh is just just too much. It was like kind of, it was kind of like a, kind of like a duck, like a, I can't even do it like my, Bruises my windpipe, just thinking about it. Um, back in the day, man, before Bethel, it was like passion. Y'all know, like passion 04, passion 05, Louis Giggly would get up there. and isn't like, I've never been to one. I've heard it was awesome. And so I couldn't afford it, so I would just like listen to the CDs. So this is like 04, we went on this trip in the 05. 
I'm listening to this thing in the Georgia Dome, and uh, I think Donald Miller was talking, uh, the writer guy, Blue Lake Jazz. And uh, he starts talking. He tells this joke, ha, 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 ha. And then, like, two seconds later, and just in the background in the recording, he goes, I mean, there's like 30,000 people here. I don't even know. I haven't talked to this girl for a year. I'm like, that's old girl from the... So I called her up, and I'm like, so this is going to sound crazy. But I went in. I went and got the Louis Giglio CD. It was dope. It was awesome. It was horrible. Just tell me one thing. Were you at the Donald Miller breakout? Yes. And I was like, and did you laugh at minute 455? She's like, yes, I did. Thank you. I mean, like, her laughter was like trademark, man. It was branded. Sarah's laughter is supposed to be contagious. Like, she's not just saying, watch my laughter. It's like, join me in laughter. Become the kind of people that, that, that learn to not only uh, laugh at themselves and at their circumstance, but laugh, laugh in the face um, of, of pain and doubt and heartache. Because life is, is too hard. And so, so there's this delivery, right? So, so she has Isaac, but even more than that, she has a personal face-to-face encounter with God and a history with God. And her hope is not only fulfilled in having the baby, it's, it's, it's having and knowing Jesus Christ. This is what we understand about the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Abraham ultimately was not just having an encounter with the Father all the time. He was having an encounter with Jesus. And this is the invitation that, that, that uh, Sarah's life is inviting us into. This is the quote that I would kind of summarize the message in today, that in Jesus, our laugh is not cynical, but is always full of wonder. And if our laugh is not full of wonder, then we need to ask our proximity to Jesus. Because in Jesus, our laugh is always full of wonder because our future is always better than our past. We are always taking steps forward, um, away from too old, beat up, left out, forgotten, and disgraced, and towards becoming a great nation and a great name. This is the promise um, of Jesus. Jesus as Timothy was talking about this morning in the gospel, was treated like us that we might be treated like him. Why is Abraham continuing to mess up? He, he sold his wife into, into prostitution, right? Like he sent her to Egypt to go be with the Pharaoh and lied and said it was his sister. You know, he's like sleeping around with the slave girl to have the baby early to have Hagar instead of, instead of Isaac. And, 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 and he's continuing to fail over and over again. And, and he's finding that as much as he fails, he can't, um, he can't outrun God's faithfulness. He can't outrun God's love. And so this is what the ongoing, never giving up, agape love of God is doing to him and to us and to Sarah is that he is continuing to change us. He's continuing to change us from the inside out and therefore changes um, our laughter. And so in Jesus, our laugh can be full of wonder. This morning, our laugh can be full of wonder uh, because we know that our future is always better than our past. Sarah laughs as a contagious laugh, because she wants us to invite, he, she wants to invite us into the grace that she's encountered. So there's three things that I think that Sarah would say if she was going to read her own story and preach this sermon this morning, uh, and they are this. Number one, I think that Sarah's laughter is teaching us that uh, God's timetable is different from ours. A lot of times we think uh, in the public school model that after first grade you go to second grade, and if you're not in second grade after you get out of first grade, then something must have happened, you must have failed. And if you're not in third grade after second grade, then something's wrong. And if you're not in fourth grade, and we think that life kind of proceeds like this, you know, like spiritual development looks like up and to the right. When really, the spiritual story of following Jesus looks a lot more like this. And then we turn 90, and he's like, that's when I'm going to give you the baby. And so Jesus says, you know, um, the sailors know what the time is and the season is because they look to the colors of the sky. And don't you know how to discern the times of the season? 
And when we don't know what God is doing in any given life, we're likely to look at our neighbors and our Instagram and our past, and we're going to compare and try and find some sort of a gauge of, like, where am I supposed to be? And his timetable is different from that. He doesn't operate on Kronos time. He operates on Kairos time. He can do in a moment what it would take us to do in a lifetime. So Sarah's story was on purpose because he's not just about the plot. He's about the person. And if it takes him 90 years to change the person, he'll do it. If it takes him 90 years to change Sarah, he'll do it. And it'll take him 90 years to change you. He'll do the same thing. But maybe today is the time to foster a kid. Why? Because nobody else is doing it? Because you think you're too old? Because you think that you're too established in your career? Why would God not tell you to do that? Why would God not call you into a different kind of ministry? Why would God not call you to move away from your job? Why would God not call you to lead or serve or volunteer? Why would God not call you to do that? Because nobody else is getting called to do that? Which leads to the second point, is I think Sarah's laughter teaches us that God is promising Isaacs, not Ishmael's. If you can figure it out on a whiteboard for 2020, it's probably not really him. The the process of birthing an Isaac requires a level of surrender and almost holy give-it-upness. Like, I cannot do this. I need you to move and do something. And so necessarily, right, if we were to take that home and apply that, it probably means that you're never going to get enough support or enough money or enough encouragement or enough community around you to help you give birth to what you're supposed to be giving birth to. He is going to surprise you and do what you think is impossible. And the only thing that matters is not the other people's yes, it's yours. Do you have a yes for him? Do you have a yes for his promise? This is the Isaac thing. It's not gonna be because you watched some other Instagram or read some other blog and those are all helpful tools that are gonna help you see you know, maybe what we can imitate, but ultimately what he is doing in you is unique. It is spirit-breathed and it's never gonna be duplicated. You are a poema that is made in Christ's image for doing good works and your good work can't be done by anybody else but you partnered with him and so nobody else can say yes except for you. Are you ready to give birth to an Isaac or are you waiting for somebody else to give birth to what he's called you to do? Lastly, his work in the workshop of his hands is not just our circumstance, but it's in our heart. And ultimately, he is trying to do a work that is not about giving you more money or changing something around you. He is trying to get inside of you and change you so permanently and so eternally that all you have left after he has worn away the cynicism is a childlike wonder. And so don't be confused when it's more painful than you think and it's taking longer than you think and somebody else is graduating faster than you are because the point was never about the plot. It was always about the person. It was about your heart. And that takes time. That is the great miracle. And that is the laughter that Sarah invites us into. I'm gonna invite you to stand and have Timothy come up as we close in worship. Uh, I would love, as I mentioned before yesterday to, or last Sunday, to do more personal ministry time or more Corporate ministry time, that means to pray for one another, to lay hands on the sick, to ask for God, to do suddenly moments because he is the God of the slow and he is also the God of the suddenly. But as you stand in your seat and as we are uh, embracing the season that we're in of COVID to ask what he's doing now and not what he's gonna do later, he might speak to you through this question today. We're gonna end this uh, this morning, uh, in the message at least, um, It'd be ironic, right? Because we typically think on a sermon on laughter, we'd be praying about our laughter. But I think, as I wrestled with God about it, that maybe he would want to do ministry uh, not just to our laughter, but to our tears this morning. And maybe the reason why we're not laughing is we don't know how to cry yet. We don't know how to let go. And we're not grieving well. And our walls are still up. And sometimes we laugh better because we're crying better. And so I don't know if any of that makes sense to you. But this is the question you might consider. 
What if you're trying to be grateful when really you're called to be grieving right now? I have a journal I've been doing, and every morning it asks me for grateful things, and I write down all the grateful things, but it was only a couple months ago that I started to realize, like, I need to ask what I'm supposed to be grieving, too. You know, like one of the first things that Jesus says in his sermon is, blessed are those who mourn. Sometimes we need our tears to teach us how to laugh, and that sounds ironic, but they come from the same place. What has been lost and what has been taken? Until we let that go, until we come to the terms that we're in a broken world, and what is is not what should be sometimes, we don't learn to let go. And so then we not only lose the thing, we lose our joy. We lose our place with God, and we lose our surrender, and we move into bitterness, and we move into unforgiveness. And so that leads to that second question, who do you need to forgive today? Grieving is about letting go. It's about pruning. He says, if I can't wash your feet, I can't wash any of you, he says to Peter. He says, I don't need to be washed. So I need to wash your feet because we walk into this depraved world because we pick up junk and garbage and sarcasm and other people's attitudes. We need to daily have our feet washed by the foot washer, by the, by the suffering servant, by Jesus himself. And so in your being washed, who do you need to forgive this morning? Be honest, be earnest, be diligent. He says to, you know, go and make it right with them before you bring your gift to the altar, even if it's only in your heart. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask forgiveness for? And lastly, where is his promise yet? not been fulfilled? Where has this promise not yet been fulfilled? There's a difference between a Hagar and an Ishmael, and you know the difference. And so part of waiting on God is knowing what his promise is and what it smells like, and to know the difference between legitimate and illegitimate, and authentic and inauthentic. And if you haven't had the Isaac yet, then ask him for it, because he's faithful. This is what the passage can tell us this morning about his character. The Lord did for Sarah what he promised, and so he will do with you. May you receive that kind of laughter and may you spend more of your days in that kind of a laughter that comes from joy and wonder rather than flippancy and sarcasm because he's changed your heart. Lord Jesus, would you move through this place and do what you've always been doing, which is breaking down our walls, breaking down our cynicism and our disappointments and bringing a grace-filled laughter. May we live as a child with that kind of joy and strength that comes from knowing you're the one who brings the Isaacs, uh, not us love you and trust you with our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.